So there is a threat that certain um, people, certain organizations, certain communities feel when you start to talk about equity. So that continues to be the challenge that, that when we all do better, we all do better. Certain people feel threatened when you start to talk about equity. Hmm. That was a quote from Kirsten Baser, the superintendent of public instruction for the state of North Dakota that struck me. When she said that at the state's Leading for Equity event last February at the Aspen Institute, I knew immediately I wanted to have her on the podcast because we had to unpack that. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm your host, Jenny Abamu, and today we are peeling back some layers. listeners and Kirsten all the way from North Dakota. Welcome to the Ed Surge on Air podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. I appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you for coming. Now I'm going to dive right into the meaty stuff with you because we have a lot to unpack. Now for the last several years, I've lived on the coast, New York City and Washington, D.C. And I also travel frequently to San Francisco where most people, at the risk of generalizing, putting the caveat out there, I am generalizing, seem to operate from the assumption that everyone wants equity or that equity is such a good thing. But you point out in the clip that I played earlier that something very interesting to me, which is that there are people who you know who've been left out of this conversation on equity because they feel that it is something that is threatening to them. Explain how you've seen this play out and why that is. Well, I think I think the entire nation is experiencing that. I think it's where we are today um, because of a lot of that. I think a lot of middle America, which is where I was born and raised and where I continue to work and raise my own children um, until they became adults. And there is that, that feeling that because things are changing so quickly that that old way of life has been disappearing. And there is a lot of fear and risk, and they want to return to the days where there was that everyone that looked like each other, that looked like me, um, that had the same opportunities, that, that we were successful. And now that is being threatened, and I think that they feel that they haven't, they haven't achieved what they wanted to or what their father or their grandfather did or grandmother or mother or grandmother did. And so they want to return to those days. And so I see it up close and personal, but I don't think it exists just in middle America. And I believe that that's our biggest challenge. We really do need to make sure that we can become a nation that's even better. I think the goal of, of all of us is to, to help us as a nation see past this, tr- this challenging part, see through this, and really imagine what we're going to be when everyone has true equity. But right now we're kind of just caught in that middle right here and we're having a hard time seeing past and through what this great nation um, could be, how it could be even better when we all do better. And that's a really good point that you bring up. As an educator, how have you seen this conversation play out in the education space? Um, Certainly. How are you able to include people who might not agree with you um, in this conversation? I think it's all about respect of relationship. I think it's about having civil discourse conversations about it. I think it really is about being able to model what we want our students to see about having conversations. So I do a lot of listening and I don't try to immediately um, relate 
because I can't relate, but I can listen and I can begin to understand. And so that's the that's what we've been doing at the State Department of Education in North Dakota. And that's what we've been modeling for our school districts as they go out and work with, as our local school leaders go out and work with their local communities who are of color or uh, tremendous diversity. North Dakota is changing. Once We used to be a very homogenous state. We used to um, have be mostly Scandinavians and Germans. And now we have a, a large new American population. And of course, we've always had our Native American population. So as we move into this new era of who we are, we need to model that and we need to see through that. Now, I mean, I'm a black female reporter, so I'm not going to pretend that I come from the viewpoint that sees equity as a threat to society. But for those who don't believe in equity, like you said before, we've seen this in our national conversations with Charlottesville and other places what is your pitch? How do you tell someone who feels threatened by others advancing in society that their advancement does not have to come at the expense of someone else's or does it? And I, for specifically for North Dakota, we have a severe employee shortage. Our, our unemployment rate is extremely low. And so I say um, to all of you know the business owners, those that are being successful, those that are feeling threatened, um, to say, we imagine what we could be as a state. We are not reaching our fullest potential in our industry and workforce and innovation and creativity until we have 100% of our workforce pulling in the same direction. And when we only have in, when we only have 80% or 77 or even 67% of our workforce fully educated and reaching their full capacity, we are operating at a deficit. And so I really come at it from an economic terms and in an economic sort of way, and then they begin to understand. But each conversation is individual. I really take time to understand why that person is feeling threatened, and then I counter with an argument of how it really would benefit. That's what I mean by saying we've got to see them through the challenging part and past what their what their biases are and really begin to get them to imagine what our world, what our nation is going to be like when we get past that. We're going to be so much better when we have true equity. Tell me some of the details about the struggles in your district. What are some things that you've done in North Dakota that make the state more equitable? I know you're part of the state's advancing for equity with the Aspen Institutes. What are some other initiatives that you've taken? So the very first um, principle is what I approached with the CCSSO states leading for equity. I needed to start from within. I needed to make sure that at the state education agency, at the very top of education, that we as a team, that my entire staff understood the importance of equity, not just those that were dealing with our Native American schools, not just those um, program people that were dealing with our students in poverty, but every single person from our outside reception staff to our fiscal and grant writers and grant deliverers to our accountants, that they understood that each and every one of us played a role in making sure that we had true equity. So we had actually engaged in a process. We're working with the Midwest States uh, Center for Equity out of the University of Indiana, and we are we hold um, training sessions for our staff to uncover what we might have as implicit biases, how we might communicate, and so we're training all of our staff at the department. As importantly, we're helping our local school districts begin to understand how important it is for every student in North Dakota, German, Russian, New American, to understand who was here before us, and that's our Native American culture. And so what we have is what was modeled after Montana's Indian Education for All, and it's mm -hmm. called Essential Understanding. It's a set of curriculum and principles that guide each and every grade level 
K through 12 into having an understanding of what the history was and who the people of North Dakota were before it was settled. That's really interesting because I've seen a lot of communities take on courses like ethnic studies in communities of color. But what you're saying is that these type of cultural pedagogies can go into all communities. Why all communities and not just the communities where those cultures are? Because when we have kindergartners that begin to learn exactly who North Dakota was, what, who comprised it, who lived on this land, the belief and the culture, it's part, of our, it's part of that child's history. When they begin to understand and learn that as a kindergarten, kindergartner and then continue through high school each and every year learning right alongside our white kiddos, learning right alongside our kiddos of color, and um, that, that they're learning it together, and then we become one citizen of North Dakota. They will be our next mayors, our next city councilmen, our next governors, our next legislators, our next U.S. senators. And when we have a generation that has grown up with that essential understanding of who they are, where they came from, they they will be incredible leaders that equity just comes natural to them. They won't even understand why we struggled with it for so long. Especially for North Dakota, there's an interesting conversation um, to be had around the Native population that you all have there. You mentioned before another conversation, in another conversation that we had, that you live close to that population. You live where the Dakota Access Pipeline was happening and all the protests were going on. Tell me how that discussion was played out in your district and how you tried to, or if you had the opportunity, to bring equity into that discussion. Absolutely. And I think that is where I really began to understand how important that civics education was to the issue of equity. I don't believe that we're going to reach equity unless our next generation of leaders, and we can start with this generation of leaders, but certainly this next generation of leaders that are in my K-12 schools across the state now, begin to understand really how to truly engage. I believe that Charlottesville, um, uh, Ferguson, Dallas, St. Paul, the Dakota Access Pipeline, it all really did. The core root of that was, again, as I told you, I, I grew up just, just, just a few miles away from where the, the center of the protests were. And I know those people. And I know that when they got the notice to come have the opportunity to exercise their voice at a public service commission hearing on the 12th floor of the Capitol on this date at this time, they just looked at it and went, what? Conversely to me, who had grown up with a very constructive family, and my father was involved in the city and planning and zoning commission, my mother was involved on our city council, I had been to one hearing after another growing up, I had had complete exposure to it, where I knew that my friends didn't have that advantage, and so when it came time to go through the proper channels of pro- of protesting the pipeline in the um, in the at the public service commission hearing meeting, they didn't engage in that, and then suddenly it was put upon them, even though it had gone through all the processes, and the only thing that they knew left to do was to protest. So I think if we get our young people engaged in community and civic activities, how to engage as a third grader, how to engage as a fourth grader, how to engage as a middle schooler and a high schooler, they suddenly know how to become part of the process, find their voice early, and then move on and engage um, in the proper channels before it reaches the level of protest. So what would you, what advice would you give to other school leaders who are maybe in positions like yours where they believe in things like equity, but they're having a hard time in their communities, especially in this environment today where it's actually really up for debate? Be courageous and be willing to be uncomfortable. As a leader, if they are school leaders, that's what we do. 
We, we need to be courageous. We need to recognize that, yes, this conversation is going to be uncomfortable. But if you model as a leader that it is comfortable, it will be fine. It will be absolutely fine. Now, I mean, at the risk of, don't say anyone's names or anything, but do you have any stories of your experience hosting these conversations? What, what, have, what has your experience been? Oh, having these conversations? Um, yes, I do. I have some conversations. And I have some conversations where it's just been upfront and brutally, you know, the, my, as a state elected official, I'm accountable to the voters of, of North Dakota. And when we um, release the essential understanding, this K-12 curriculum for all North Dakota students, I had to have tough conversations with the, um, some North Dakotans that were very upset that I had created an essential understandings for all of our Native American culture? Why wasn't I having an essential understandings of our Scandinavian history or the people that um, are inhabiting North Dakota from whose ancestors were from Scandinavia or Germany for that matter? And I just really needed to explain that we as North Dakotans were going to learn the history of North Dakota. And I had to assure them that the history of North Dakota also included the settlement of uh, the new Americans at the time that were coming from um, Scandinavia and Germany during, you know, the, the late 1800s and early 1900s. So to really have that conversation, hear what they were saying, but then stand firm in my belief and my knowledge that this is good because we are all learning the history of North Dakota as it existed long before some of us arrived. So you really have to think about every possible angle, how everyone would feel, whether someone would be left out of the discussion. How do you really make sure you include everyone in this discussion? I think the group grows. I will tell you, and again, part of being courageous, part of understanding that it's going to be uncomfortable. Another piece, I guess, I would really um, encourage everyone to understand and embrace is that you're not going to be mistake-free. The first few gatherings, I didn't have everyone at the table that I needed. Um, but those that were feeling left out were bold enough to reach out to me and say, you know what, I'm disappointed that I wasn't invited. Can I be invited at the next um, at the next gathering? And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. You're totally right. That was completely an oversight on my part. Yes, please come. And, and that's how that grows. And so... Um, you're not going to get it right the first time. You're not going to have exactly all the right players at the table. There will be people. But if you remain open to this as an evolving, organic conversation that's going to lead us through to the other side, where suddenly we understand as a state and a nation how much better off we are than we were before because of this, then, then you're well on your road to making it successful. And will we ever reach perfection? Hmm. I hope not. I hope not, but I think we're much better off today than we were in the 1950s when, you know, Memphis had to, to have, a, have a garbage strike to get something accomplished. So I, I just, we're much better now than we were 50 years ago. I just want to look back and say we're much better 50 years from now than we were today. Mm. And Kirsten, uh, how do you know you're making progress in this? Because uh, this conversation does seem to go back and forth like a pendulum. How do you know you're going forward? I, I, it's mostly anecdotal at this point, um, because we've only just begun. This is, this didn't happen overnight and it's not going to get solved overnight. So how I know I'm making progress is because the conversations are deeper, they're longer, they're more frequent, and they're more honest. 
In fact, next week, Wednesday, I'm headed up to our Turtle Mountain um, Reservation to have another meeting with our tribal community, our tribal council up there and that community. Instead of a four-hour meeting that it was uh, the when we went up, uh, I guess about four months ago was the last time we visited, we've now scheduled an eight-hour meeting because there's so much we want to discuss. There's so much conversation we're having about progress. So that's the anecdotal side. What I will be really looking for, though, um, is the quantitative side because all of this talk and all of this feeling really isn't going to matter if we're not moving the needle for success and achievement for our, for our students of color, our students of poverty. And so we have our baseline now, and I want to make sure that our Native American and our white and our students of color, that their graduation rate is 100% and that all of those students are 100% choice ready to either be college ready, career ready, or military ready in the state. And so that's the data that we'll be using. And we're also looking at ways um, to measure the non-academic because it's easy to measure test scores, but we also understand that there's so much more to being successful. Will the, will the wage earnings be equal? Will our students you know, have just as many opportunities to be socially, emotionally healthy and be well-rounded and, and have a health score, a social, emotional health score that is just as high as any other segment. So those are the things that we measure. That's an important piece as well. Now, before we close, I want to ask you to reflect and kind of think um, as someone who didn't exactly start off with this, ex this challenge, but now has taken this on and you start from the place of reflecting on yourself how would you say that you've changed after taking this on, taking on this mission? That is such a good question. Um, and it just, I really just kind of sighed and, and, and a feeling of warmth really came over me um, because I, I just, the emotion that, the emotion that I, that I have when I think about how important this work is, what the, the most important change that has come over me is that I knew the problem existed I knew it was a challenge. I knew it was a struggle. And it became so hard for me to deal with because I was so emotional about the gains that we weren't able to make. And I was so emotionally devastated about what can one person do to make that change. And it seemed like an overwhelming problem to me that I sometimes just avoided it and went on to things that could were easier and I could see more gains more quickly. And since I began and really made my commitment two years ago, I have just become a person that has said truly and convictingly, if not me, then who? And I know that one person can make a difference and a small group of people can make a difference because that small group grows. And so it's just an unshakable commitment to this work. And um, with that, I just present myself stronger, more convicted with a stronger voice. And I think through that, people see that. And those that were like me before that are saying, I can't jump onto this mission. I, gotta, I just got to figure out what's gonna, I can fix on my own little nine acres. They are jumping on board, too, with as much passion because I think we've all really understood together we can make a difference. Excellent. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast today and sharing your insights about what's going on in North Dakota. I appreciate the time with you. Always very nice to chat with you. I hope I see you again soon. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jenny Abamu, and you can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or sending an email to us at feedback at edsurge.com. 
You can also subscribe to us on your iPhone podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education.